Today's show is brought to you in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. In appreciation of our guests' participation, we have made a contribution to the following organization on their behalf. One Tree Planted. We plant one tree with every dollar donated. For more information, please visit OneTreePlanted.org. We're seeing the devastating impacts of climate change, and there's bad stuff that's now baked in. The important thing is we can prevent it from becoming truly catastrophic to the point where we will exceed our adaptive capacity as a species. Um, Mm. We don't want to do that. No. We're still within a range where we can cope with this if we prevent it from getting worse. And that's why it's so important right now that we in the United States and other countries around the world make the commitments necessary to get us off fossil fuels. Welcome to Sync for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with Debbie Harry and Chris Stein, co-founders of the legendary new wave band Blondie. Blondie emerged as one of the most inventive and successful bands from the late 70s and early 80s in New York. Their 1981 hit Rapture was the first song with rap music in it to hit number one on the charts, and also the first music video with rap in it to be aired on MTV. Also joining us is pioneering climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann. Dr. Mann came up with the now iconic hockey stick graph that represents the post-industrial sharp increase in global temperatures. According to Dr. Mann's research and that of the latest IPCC report, our opportunity for redemption has not yet passed us by. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Rapture, How Science Can Deliver Us from a Climate Catastrophe of Biblical Proportions. Hello, Blondie and Michael Mann. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Hi, Matt. Thank you. It's It's a real pleasure. Chris and Debbie, I I wanted to ask you about the night in the Bronx that inspired this song, because now what sets Rapture apart from your other songs is the rap that Debbie performs at the end of it. Could you tell our listeners the origin story? Well, we we had met Freddie of Renown, Fab Five Freddie, who went on to host his own MTV show called Yo Raps. And that's, you know, we were just hanging out with him regularly. And he said, I think, you know, I've discussed this with him and I think it was 1977 is what we came upon as a date. And, but it, but it might've been later, it might've been 78 or something. And he, you know, he just said, well, there's this big event going on in the Bronx at a police athletic league. And why don't you guys come up with me? And we went and it was just super exciting and eye opening to see all this going on at the same time as the downtown music scene, but it wasn't, there was really no connection between these two scenes at that point. Yeah, I think Glenn was there as well, and Patty. Yeah, Glenn and Patty Astor, people who were involved with people who were involved with the Wild Style movie. Yeah. And I'd read in one account, Niall Rogers is there with you. Is that not the case? No, Niall was not with us. No. Niall, Niall was actually unfamiliar with rap himself, and when we started meeting with him for the first time, he was 
kind of a little, you know, taken aback that he he wasn't, you know, it was a new form to him also. Well, how familiar were you both with rap music by that point? We and Harold did Sugar Hill stuff, you know, and heard Rapper's Delight was on the radio. So I, I had a basic conception of it, but I was but seeing it in person was really eye-opening. And Grandmaster Flash was performing, right? Grandmaster Flash and probably like the Cold Crush and Funky Four plus one more. We were mm-hmm. very much enamored of because they had a girl singer and we brought them out to Saturday Night Live with us later on. Mm. It, it was a it was a really great, very exciting event. You know, it was nothing like what we were used to with bands being, you know, filing on and off stage, one band replacing another. This was <clears> this <throat> continuous madness of, you know, the DJs and the MCs coming up and performing in this sort of loop. Yeah. I, I sort of didn't realize, I don't remember especially there being any uh, formality to it, uh, as Chris was saying that, you know, and it also seemed that there were some like no-name kids that just jumped up there because they really had something to say, which uh, was also very exciting. And it was like folk music to me, mm. although musically it wasn't like folk music, but the uh, idea. It's folk music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, but you know, I was very excited because on a, on a socio-political level, it was you know literally all these marginalized kids finding a voice. Yeah, exactly. So that it was you know it was very exciting. Yeah, and is it true, Debbie? You were so taken with Flash's prowess at the decks that you said, "I'm going to mention you in this song we're doing." Uh, no, no, not especially. It's just that. You know, he was one of the guys, you know, he was the man and uh, we we liked him. We met him and yeah, he uh, came over to our apartment a couple of times. He was a good guy. Okay. He was a good guy. And uh, we could see that, you know, there was something really there. It was really something yeah. there. It was it was a Vox Pops uh, kind of situation and it had to go somewhere. You know, it really did. It had to go somewhere. And so you, Debbie, did you write the lyrics, the melodic lyrics, and Chris, you wrote the rap? I think so. We we collaborated on yeah. most of it, but I, you know, I, I was a big B movie stoner at the time, so I wrote all this okay. Man from Mars nonsense. <laughs> but, oh, okay, um, yeah, yeah, eating cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could construe that as a um, environmental message, <laughs> perhaps. That's a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> I get Ferlin Getty on Cosmos with Carl Sagan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you guys had had three number one hits at that point. Did having that level of success under your belt help inspire the confidence to try your hand at this completely different medium? Uh, we just did what we wanted to do. I don't think there was that aspect. I, the, the only song I was really sure was going to be successful was Tide is High because I just had so much faith in it as a song. All this, all the other stuff, mm. I was never certain. But well, of. obviously you were no strangers to genre blending with Tide is High. And well, let's say, all we say, you know, the people we admired the most, like Bowie and Lou Reed, or even the Rolling Stones were always redesigning themselves as they went along and changing, yeah. changing their genres. You were connected to so many important cultural moments. And I mean, you mentioned the the downtown scene. So obviously you guys emerge, you come up with early CBGB's bands. And then there's an association 
albeit small, with Studio 54. There's the early hip hop. I mean, Debbie, you sang with Kermit on The Muppet Show, for Christ's sakes. I mean, do you, did you have a sense of their respective or their combined significance, all these things that you were connected to? Not especially. It was just our, our nature as artists. You know, we, we both came from a not a strictly musical ideology in art or music. And so our interests and our observations went further mm-hmm. afield than perhaps, you know, somebody who was strictly interested in, in rock bands or, or pop bands. You know, another thing I've, I've always wanted to know is what your take is on the current nostalgia for 1970s New York, given that you're so... I'm not taking you're it. You're not into it, are you? <laughs> I hate nostalgia. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, okay. But, you know, I find myself dipping into it. I've been writing a memoir okay. and have to address all this stuff. Ah, right, uh, right. My relationship to the, my past selves. It was always probably nostalgia, though. You know, it just maybe it was not as blatant and in your face as things are now with the internet and all, you know? Right. That's but, true. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly astonished by the m- endless mining of the 80s for source material mm. uh, that goes yeah. on in films and music, you know. I like I like the past and I like to build on the past. It's inevitable that we that we build on the past. We learn from the past and that's what it is. That's what art and music are. They're layering of things that sift through and that and that's how we do it. But I mean, to to walk down memory lane and strictly speaking, you know, and staying there, I think is kind of mm-hmm. kind of a mistake. Really. Well, also, I see a lot of mediocre crap from the '80s that people are enamored of now. It's like, oh my god, that happened in my childhood, so it's amazing. But I, I could give a fuck about the Ninja Turtles, you know, whatever. You know? <laughs> Chris. Have you guys seen the Fran Lebowitz Pretend It's a City series on Netflix? No, yeah, 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 I should watch. Yeah, I know about it. I love Fran. Oh, Fran, she's, I know about it. she's so great. It's a, similarly, Debbie, she's lamenting how young people are approaching her saying how that they wish they'd lived in 1970s New York. And her response is, when I got here, I never said I wish I lived here in the 30s. Go get him, Fran. Well, yeah. I would have I liked to have seen the city in the 20s and 30s. Certainly, I can't. I don't write that sure. off. But yeah. um, as mm. I always say, in the '70s, everybody I knew was constantly moaning and groaning about how awful it was and how they wanted to leave, but nobody left. So, and there's a, there's this great Lou Reed monologue where he says how uncomfortable he is everywhere else in the world, how horrible it is in New York, but mm. how much more uncomfortable he is everywhere else in the world. You know, mm-hmm. so. That sounds about right. Now, there's uh, an alternate version of this that's coming out, Yuletide Throwdown. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? We, when we were recording Rapture, we the first take of it was slower than the existing version. And I just got the master tape and worked it up at my home studio and mm-hmm. put Freddie on it. And it became this Christmas mm-hmm. thing. And it's it's been it's been floating around for years, but there's never been a full on full on remix and release of it. Debbie, yeah, Debbie is holding up the the twelve yeah. inch right now, and it's got really cool art. That's yeah. nice. Yeah, I need that. When is that available? I guess for Christmas. <laughs> oh yeah, what was it? Just the nature of the lyrics that it's that... a Christmas song. It's like Die Hard. Okay. <laughs> 
Dr. Mann, you grew up on the East Coast. I'm curious, what is your association, your memory of Blondie? Did you did you go into the city in the 70s and the 80s? And obviously we were all fans, but... No, I, I didn't make it to New York City too often, but I absolutely grew up with Blondie and some of the iconic songs that you guys produced when I was coming of age, really. I graduated high school in 84. And so it's very meaningful to me that you guys are now sort of using art, using music to try to talk about this challenge that we're all interested in doing something about. I come at it from the scientific side of it. You guys come from the art and musical side of it. But we need all of those voices, right? If we're going to solve the greatest challenge we've ever faced, then we need all hands on deck. And it's so important for the the community of artists and musicians to use this amazing access you have to a large audience to really try to alert folks and raise awareness about this defining crisis. Yeah. Well, we had a song from one of the uh, earlier albums uh, called Orchid Club. And uh, more recently, when we've been performing it, I rewrote the lyrics to make nature into a person. You know, we have to live with nature, can't live without it, etc. Well, we had a moment on TV when we were doing... Heart of Glass or on American Bandstand or something, and you stuck in some speech about nuclear proliferation in the middle of it mm-hmm. on national television, which mm-hmm. was, was kind of awkward and weird, but yeah. it was what it was, you know. It was your fault. <laughs> like some Pete Seeger stuff. So, um, Dr. Mann, I just finished reading your new book. You know, one thing that I would like to discuss is a process behind your most famous work, this hockey stick graph. And it must have required an enormous amount of creativity, just going into tree rings, digging up ancient ice to find out these temperatures from the Middle Ages. Could you tell us a little bit about how you were able to get that data and more about the graph itself for people who aren't familiar? Sure. And thanks for framing that way, because I think that's really important. Science does require a certain amount of creativity. It it requires a, a certain amount of imagination. And so we're not that far apart in some sense in terms of our skill set and the tools that we use, musicians and scientists alike. And we're interested in solving this riddle of how did the climate change in in the distant past? This was 1998 when the graph was published. This was the hottest year on record. So people were really starting to talk about the fact that this stuff is getting real. And that is the time period during which we published this graph. In fact, it was published on Earth Day, April 22nd, 1998. It got a huge amount of exposure and it took on a life of its own that I wouldn't have anticipated because we had approached this from a scientific standpoint. We were interested in addressing this question, how unusual is recent warming? We only have about a at the time, about a century of widespread thermometer measurements around the world. So we had to figure out how we could use information, as you alluded to, from these so-called proxy records, like tree rings and corals and ice cores, and pull them together, take all of the information in this disparate sort of collection of records that any one of which required field work by teams of scientists. So there's so much work that actually goes into obtaining these archives, going to the Arctic or to high mountaintops to get ice cores, um, swimming below the ocean surface to get old coral records. My job, in a sense, was sort of easy. Mm. I I didn't have to do all that. I I got to Mm. analyze all of this amazing data that my fellow scientists had produced. And when we put it together, 
although it wasn't really what got us interested in the problem in the first place, when we sort of constructed the graph and we took a look at what we had found, it was shocking because it did have the shape of a hockey stick. The blade of that hockey stick, the abrupt warming of the past century and a half that coincides, not coincidentally, with the Industrial Revolution and you know the, the burning of fossil fuels and the increase in carbon pollution in the atmosphere, very clearly had emerged from the noise. We could see this spike that was unprecedented as far back as we could go. Uh, a thousand years at the time, scientists in the two decades since then have been able to extend that much farther back. We're now fairly certain that the warming spike that we're seeing now is unprecedented in hundreds of thousands of years. So we are engaged in this dangerous experiment with the only planet that we know that can support life and us. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we might have our last opportunity. This could really be our last opportunity to make the commitments necessary to prevent truly catastrophic warming of the planet. So this is it. This is the moment. This is when we have to be talking about this and doing something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I was at something in London uh, a couple of years ago and Vivian Westwood, the designer is adamant climate uh, control person and, uh, you probably don't know her, but she's, you know, she's a, a formidable personality and uh, she's been going on about this for a while. And at that point, she she was so concerned that she thought that there really was no way to reverse at this point, you know, that it would be nearly impossible to reverse the damage. Yeah, we can't reverse it at this point. A lot of what we're seeing, the catastrophes we're seeing play out in real time now in the form of these unprecedented wildfires and floods um, and, and in New York, you know, not far, far from New York City, which just saw its worst uh, flooding event on record recently with uh, Ida, with that uh, storm as it made its way through. Yeah. We've got to get off fossil fuels. We've got to bring them down, our carbon emissions down by 50% within a decade. Mm-hmm. It's a monumental task, mm-hmm. but it's doable. It isn't physically impossible. It's just a mm-hmm. matter of political will, having the political will to act and using our voices to put pressure on politicians so that they do act. You know, with all this stuff, I keep seeing the socio-political aspects, which are that every fucking event that goes on now is politicized. And to me, the politicization of the virus is the most screwed up thing I've ever witnessed. You know, and I've seen a lot of screwed up stuff. And it's just, it's so crazy that this has become uh, some kind of push-pull between sides yeah. and in the same in the same sense to see you know climate change the environment plastic in the oceans all this stuff is considered multi-level thing you know that has two sides yeah. you know the fact that these events are considered by many people to have a positive and a negative rather than just being all negative yeah. which is which seems to me the rational view it, it's very screwed up and I don't know how to get around that. And the internet, all this disinformation floating yeah. out in the world doesn't seem to help. You know, I, I still am seeing people writing the craziest stuff on Twitter. You know, my my friend is in the, ventil- in the ventilator, and if only he could get the horse paste, he'd be fine. 
And people, people are still believing and buying into this madness. Well, you know, Chris, a few months ago, I wrote a, an op-ed, a commentary for, for Newsweek, the title of which was, Anthony Fauci, we climate scientists feel your pain. Uh, because it's the same thing, just as you say, it's the same thing. It's the weaponization of ignorance by special <clears throat> interests and people with an ideological agenda and who loses out, all of us. Right, we do. Did you see that meme at the beginning of coronavirus that it had a picture of the of planet Earth and it said uh, climate science needs to hire coronavirus's publicist? <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, right, I yeah. get it, yeah. Why can't everybody just not drive on the weekend? Well, I think they did that in COVID. Would that make a dent? What if nobody drove on Sunday? Individual behavioral change is part of it. We all should try to be part of the solution. Makes us feel better. Makes a difference. It it makes us healthier to bike more, uh, drive less. We should all do those things. But what we can't allow is for the special interest, the polluters, to convince us that it's all on us as individuals because we need systemic change. We need policies that will move us off fossil fuels, and we need politicians who are willing to support those policies. And in my book, I I really emphasize the duality. It's both. It's individual behavior, but we can't do it alone. We need politicians who are going to help us through this dramatic transition that we need to go through. And the central piece in your estimation is carbon pricing, right? Yeah, I was going to say, could you just define carbon pricing simply? Yeah. So carbon pricing is one mechanism. Actually, as it turns out, you know, you put a price on carbon, a carbon tax or cap and trade. We've heard a lot about that. So you level the playing field because look, when you burn carbon, you're dumping pollution into the atmosphere, you're hurting the planet. And why should polluters be allowed to do that at no cost? So the idea here is you level the playing field so that renewable energy that isn't destroying the planet can compete fairly in the marketplace. That's all it's asking for. Because if it can compete fairly, if it doesn't cost more, to purchase electricity from a source that isn't hurting the planet, then people will make the right choice. We have to make it easy for people to make a planet-friendly choice. And How do you get away from these weird associations of the Green New Deal with putting people in gulags or whatever? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's where it goes. It quickly runs to this crazy other side. Right. Well, you know, the other side has been very effective. Climate opponents, conservatives, uh, fossil fuel interest groups, the front groups that they fund have been very effective in their messaging, making any effort to do something healthy for the planet sound like it's an imposition on people's liberty. It mm-hmm. sort of, they play to sort of the red meat of the conservative base by throwing words, you know, they're going to take away your hamburgers. They're not going to allow you to fly to see grandma during the holidays it's a fear tactic mm. that yeah. obviously distorts the choices that mm. we're making, but it's intended to sort of draw upon that reptilian part of mm. our brain. Ah. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to animate, you know, their base um, uh, so that they, 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 they become an obstacle to meaningful progress. In your, in your book, you talk about how that actually ends up being a divisive among climate activists. I think that's important to get out there. Yeah, we have to be careful because, um, and Chris, you you alluded to this earlier. I, I thought you laid it out so clearly. They've weaponized social media and they're using bot armies. And when I say they, I'm talking about fossil fuel interests, polluters, right-wing groups, dark money, Koch brothers funded groups, for example. But I'm also talking about some bad state actors. Russia has, has not played a constructive role here and they've used bots to try to sabotage climate action because they see themselves actually as benefiting if we don't do something about climate change. Vladimir Putin does. Well, they're all about the oil pipelines and all that stuff. 
Yeah, there was a half trillion dollar oil deal between Russia and the United States that was at the heart of why they wanted Trump to be president. So he would approve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But ultimately, if I'm, you know, saying, hey, you're not vegan and you're saying, oh, well, you know, you you travel 30,000 miles a year on airplanes. Right. Ultimately, that kind of dilutes our force and we can't unify and appeal for stronger policy change. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, you know, it would be great for us to be more responsible. And, you know, if you drive a vehicle, electric vehicle has a much lower carbon footprint. And if you can use public transportation, that's great. And if you can do less travel, less recreational flying on vacations, all of those things help. But in the end, the problem is that we won't see the reductions in carbon emissions that are necessary unless we decarbonize our infrastructure. And we're only going to do that through policies, through governmental Mm. policies. So let's Mm. not create animosity with with our allies, climate advocates, progressives, people who are on board, who want to do something about the problem. These bad actors that I was referring to use social media to get us arguing with each other, to get us finger pointing. Oh, if you're not a vegan, then you don't really care about the climate. Oh, if you had children, then you don't really care about the climate. If you fly, you don't really care about the climate because then it devolves into a shouting match. It divides the community of climate advocates so that we don't speak with a united voice demanding action. And who wins? The polluters. And that's why they're playing that game. And so be aware of that. Be aware of the way that social media is being used, is being weaponized to pit us against each other. Don't take the bait and recognize that there are these underhanded tactics. Look, here's the problem for polluters. They can't deny climate change is happening anymore because it's starting to look sort of like the apocalypse that that you guys sang about, you know, um, in, in rapture. We're seeing devastating climate impacts now. So they can't deny it's happening. So they've turned to these other tactics to try to prevent us from acting, division, deflection, et cetera. We need to reassess what the apocalypse is. Our buddy, William Gibson, the writer, you know, the great writer who invented the phrase cyberspace, he describes the apocalypse as what he terms the jackpot as something that takes 50 years. It's not an overnight event. It's not you wake up the next day and all the men are dead, like I just saw on a TV show last night, you know? That's one solution. That could help. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, the political leaders who have done the most are people like uh, Jacinda Ahern of of New Zealand and uh, Angela Merkel of Germany. So we have seen far more leadership from women politicians, and that's relevant here. Maybe we need a little less testosterone in our political system. Well, what does true climate Armageddon look like in your estimation, Mike? Well, so we're at the point where we're seeing dangerous climate change. We often say, oh, well, dangerous climate change will happen at a degree of additional warming or two degrees. No, it's happening now. I mean, look at what New York uh, City just went through. Look at what the Western states, what California is going through. Dangerous climate change and other countries, frankly, those countries that don't have as much wealth and infrastructure as us, who are far more vulnerable to the devastating impacts of climate change. Folks in the global South who don't have the means to insulate themselves against many of these damaging impacts. So dangerous climate change for all of these people, for so many people, has arrived now. And so it's really a question of how bad we're willing to let it get. And if you look at this from a sober standpoint, it's reasonable 
to imagine that we are still within that range of resilience where we can adapt to some of the changes, uh, you know, many of the changes that have been baked in. If we can stop it from getting worse, then civilization can not only survive, but ultimately will be happier and healthier, a cleaner environment. That's still a possible future, but that future is slipping away because what the numbers, and they're unforgiving, tell us that if we don't bring those carbon emissions down, like I said, by about 50% within the next decade, and basically down to zero within a few decades, we completely decarbonize the global economy. If we don't do that, then we start to get into that, we start to exceed our adaptive capacity as a species. And that's a scary proposition. What's that look like? We don't have to use our imagination because art and music has depicted that. Blondie has depicted what that sort of future could look like. Hollywood has depicted the sort of dystopian futures. Those are not unreasonable models for a worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. We can cause the world to look like that if we continue down this fossil fuel path. We can also leave a much better planet for our children and grandchildren if we act now. So the choice is up to us. Why don't I ever hear anything about superconductors, which I think are fundamental to infrastructure and to improving electrical engines? And it's something I was hearing a lot about, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and then it's just, it's just gone. Yeah, no, it just sort of vanished. Uh, The whole concept of just disappeared. There are technological innovations that will make this transition easier. And we have to continue to invest in basic research and development. And, And there are all sorts of promising technologies in the pipeline. But Let's not allow that to be used as an excuse for inaction, because we are seeing some politicians say, oh, well, yeah, we'll act on the problem, but we'll do it by 2050, kicking it several decades down the road. We'll go carbon, you know, net zero by 2050, because we'll have all of this new technology. It's a way to kick the can down the road and take the pressure off politicians for making the decisions that we need to make today. We have the technology to solve this problem in terms of existing renewable energy. All we lack right now is the political willpower. Is cattle farming really a huge component in causing all this stuff? No, it's been grossly overstated. Agriculture and livestock is part of the problem, frankly. Every sector of modern civilization is part of the problem because we burn fossil fuels, we generate carbon pollution from pretty much every activity that we engage in, in our economy and as individuals. And so there's no one size fits all magic bullet solution. Burning fossil fuels for energy and transportation is the lion's share. That's about two thirds. And that's why we focus so much on that. But if we're going to get down to zero, then we need to decarbonize agriculture and livestock. And the eating of cattle, beef alone, and the methane that they generate combined are a pretty small fraction of the problem. But if you aggregate all of agriculture and livestock, it's like 25%. So we have to think about every facet of our lives and how we can reduce our carbon footprint in every facet. But let's keep the eye on the prize. What we have to do immediately is get off the burning of fossil fuels for energy and transportation, because that's where two thirds of the carbon pollution is coming from. Can you elaborate in response to Chris's question? What was it that you found faulty in the math of that film Cowspiracy? I thought that was really interesting. Ah, yes. There were some factual inaccuracies there. And in my book, I do go through that. And the Cowspiracy argues that 51% of our carbon emissions are from cows. And what I point out in the book is that the correct answer is a transposition of those two numbers, those two numerals. It's not 51. 
it's 15. <laughs> Just switch the five and the one and you get the right answer. It's a much smaller fraction of our carbon emissions. And, and they did some, basically where they go wrong in the accounting is they say, well, cows eat grass. And so you have to, you know, grow grass and other feeds to feed them. But the carbon that is in grass and, and other vegetation and these feeds actually came out of the atmosphere in the, in the recent past. So it's sort of a zero-sum game. Plants just sort of circulate the carbon. They're not adding net carbon to mm. the atmosphere. And so what they did is they looked only at the carbon that was given off by the plants rather than taking into account the carbon that was taken up by the plants in the first place. So there was some bad accounting there that led them to an erroneous figure of 51% mm -hmm. when very careful analyses by leading scientists have given us the figure of it's about 15%. Okay. It's not zero, so it's part of the problem. And livestock and agriculture combined, again, about 25% of the problem. So we can't ignore it. But again, let's keep our eye on the prize. And Fossil fuels is the main culprit. All right. While you're at it, could you give us a chemistry and physics primer, what happens when exhaust leaves our, our cars? So the problem is the carbon in plants, the carbon we give off is carbon that's circulating in the atmosphere on timescales of years. It's not adding to the net carbon burden in the atmosphere. But when we dig up dead plant material from 100 million years ago, that's carbon that's been out of the system for 100 million years. When we dig it up and we burn it in the form of fossil fuels, oil, gas, natural gas, coal, then we're taking fossil carbon that had been buried in the earth for tens of millions of years, 100 million years, and we're adding it to the atmosphere over tens or 100 years, a million times faster. We're taking carbon that nature buried over 100 million years and putting it back in the atmosphere in 100 years. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. So it's bad, but we can still do something about it yeah. to be very clear. Yeah. Is there um, any merit to the idea that climate change won't affect the rich like it will the poor of this world? I think there's a lot of delusion by some people, that they can somehow avoid the problem, build huge bunkers, those who have millions of dollars, fortresses, starting to sound like a Billy Idol video, mm. <laughs> and, you know, to keep out the... Is that, is that really going on? I didn't think that was even relevant. There is some of that going on. You see property values increasing in some places like New Zealand that are seen as sort of refugia as yeah, the planet right. warms. So there's a little bit of that going on. But and, and the reality is that these folks do have the resources to sort of... To what? Maintain for another extra hundred years? I mean, what the fuck, you know? Well, exactly, right. It gives them a little bit of added time because they have the means to build fortresses and move to new locations and fly off to better climates if they need to. But they're fooling themselves because it goes back to the Billy Idol video. What good is it to, to live at the top of that fortress when the rest of the world has become zombies that are intent on eating you in the end? That's not a world we want to live in. I got to brush up on my Billy Idol. What Billy Idol video are you talking about? I don't yeah. know about that one, right? Uh, dancing with myself when he's up on top of it's a post-apocalyptic dystopia. Uh, yeah. And he's got these like zombies that are crawling the side of the tower. Yeah, we don't want that. Eating the rich is not really applicable because there's just not enough of them anyway. Very good point. <laughs> no, I mean, and, but the, the, the fact is that they're fooling themselves into thinking that they're somehow immune. But I do think that that thinking 
has caused many plutocrats and the 1% to care far less about this existential crisis than they need to, because it's often said, no man is an island. In in a planet, in a degraded planet, Mm. none of us prosper. Mm -hmm. And so why do some progressives like Bernie Sanders not support carbon pricing? Well, Bernie, his heart is in the right place. There's been a lot of pressure in some sort of sectors of the progressive, environmental progressive movement against carbon pricing because it's been perceived or argued to be inconsistent with climate justice, with distributional justice, the idea that the uh, tax will fall heavily on those who have the least wealth. The opposite has been true where it's been implemented, places like Canada, Australia. It's been implemented in a progressive fashion. So the revenue that's raised actually goes back to frontline communities, low-income earners. And so it, it depends on what you do with the revenue. But that misconception really has been weaponized by opponents of climate action frankly, to fool progressives into thinking that they shouldn't be supporting Mm -hmm. climate action. Mm -hmm. I still could use a little more detail on carbon pricing. Could you break down how it worked in Canada? I mean, do we do we get Exxon to pay more and how is that not going to manifest at the pump? Yeah, so it does raise prices. It wouldn't work if there wasn't a price signal. Now, a lot of that is felt by the fossil fuel companies. It hurts their corporate profits. But there is also potential impact on on prices, although it's very small. And in Australia, for example, where they implemented uh, an emissions trading scheme, the conservative government claimed that prices were going to skyrocket. You won't be able to buy food. There was a small increase in prices, negligible, frankly, for the consumer. Much of the cost was borne by the polluters, by the fossil fuel companies. There was a small increase in price. And the revenue that was raised by what essentially a carbon tax, it was called an emissions trading scheme, was returned to the people uh, as a dividend. And it was returned preferentially, again, to low-income earners. So mm-hmm. they actually benefited. Low-income earners benefited from that. And the whole planet benefited, right, from sure. the fact that we were doing something. Similar thing in Canada. But a conservative opponents want you to think that this is going to hurt the poor. It's a way of them trying, frankly, to mobilize some on the environmental side, for their cause of inaction. And what about this um, 1.5 degree warming limit? How did scientists arrive at that number? Yeah, I'd like to tell you that it's like rigorously derived by a form. There's a gray area here, right? 1.5 degrees Celsius warming of the planet, three degrees Fahrenheit warming of the planet, is where some things really start to get bad. We lose the coral reefs of the world. The extreme weather events we're already seeing they get that much more extreme. We potentially commit to the collapse of larger and larger pieces of the ice sheets, which gives us more sea level rise in the future. But it's not a cliff that we go off. Sometimes it sounds like that. Oh, one and a half degrees is the cliff. And if we go off it, then it's too late. There's nothing we can do. To me, a better analogy is a minefield. We're walking out onto a minefield. And the farther we walk out onto that minefield, the more harm that we suffer, Mm. the more risk we take on. So it's a matter of preventing as much warming as we possibly can. And one and a half Celsius is a pretty good number to put out there as to sort of a a red line that we don't want to go beyond because things really do start to get pretty bad at that point. And you think, Mike, that this idea of a runaway climate change is a a misconception. Uh, Debbie and Chris, I need to tell you that Mike and his book can turn a mean phrase. He coins the phrase climate doom porn. (laughs) Well, 
It is, right? I mean, we know how this works. Chris was talking about this. What gets clicks? What gets things retweeted? It's the more outrageous you are. It's sort of that adrenaline rush that you get from a disaster film. It sort of taps into, I used it before, the sort of reptilian part of our brain that animates us and, and gets us animated, gets us irritated, causes us to, to argue and fight with each other. So there are people who genuinely have fallen into despair and they're good people and they're well-meaning and we have to recognize them as victims of misinformation, of people who have said it's too late to do anything. Unstoppable global warming is underway. We're all going to be dead in 10 years, no matter what we do. And there is a prominent uh, scientist who has made a name for himself by arguing precisely that. If you believe that, if you believe it's too late to do anything at all, then, you know, why even try? It leads you down a path of disengagement in the same way that outright denial does. So we have to recognize how unhelpful it is because it's premised. There is no science to support that. The science tells us it's still possible to prevent the worst impacts of climate change. But as I said, the numbers are pretty unforgiving. We need to dramatically reduce our carbon emissions, but it's not too late to do so. And this idea that's wrong, that it is too late to do so, feeds this sort of uh, agenda mm -hmm. of inaction. And it has been used by polluters mm -hmm. to try to, again, to weaponize some on the environmental left who would otherwise be on the front lines advocating action. But if they're convinced it's too late to do anything, then you have disengaged them. And that plays directly to the agenda of the polluters. And so when we see people who have fallen victim to that misinformation, they're not the enemy. They are victims of this disinformation campaign. Let's help them out of that despair and get them back on the front lines where we need them advocating for action. Okay. We're just about out of time. Debbie and Chris, do you either of you have any more questions for Mike or anything that you'd like to bring up? Yeah, are you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm Michael E. Mann on Twitter. And I do think that social media, it's really important for us to engage. There are some bad actors out there. Like we said, we're trying to weaponize social media. Let's use it as a resource for educating people and motivating people. And so I'll look for you, Chris. Social media is a, a blessing and a curse. It's created what I term the false hive mind, where everyone is having the same thought simultaneously, but there's, it's not really due to a connection. It's just a reflection in a way. No, absolutely. Let, let's use it for good. What are two or three things, Mike, that anyone listening can do to help? Oh, well, vote in this next election and vote on climate. Make that the number one issue that you vote for and use your voice in every way possible to put pressure on policymakers, to motivate others to vote, to demand action on the part of even those that we might think of as our friends, even those we might think of politicos as allies are feeling so much pressure from the polluters that they're not always gonna do the right thing without additional pressure brought to bear by us. So use your voice in every way possible. And that can be social media, that can be writing letters to the local editor, that can be just talking with your friends and family members and schoolmates and coworkers, making sure climate change is part of our daily conversation. I think that was four or five things, but uh, there you are. And should, should I really worry about using paper towels, which I actually do, and plastic bags and all that stuff? You know, we could have a larger conversation about the larger problem, because it isn't just climate change. It's how do we live sustainably on this planet? And a continued path of extraction and resource extraction is at some point incompatible 
with a sustainable existence on this planet. That's something we have to come to terms with. Yeah. Uh, but the most immediate threat that is part of that that we face is the climate threat. And that's where I focus a lot of my attention right now is on acting on climate. But let's continue to have this conversation about how more generally we can live sustainably on this planet. Okay. Thanks for your efforts. Well, thanks right back thanks at you guys. You. Yes, thank you. Be sure to pick up a vinyl copy of Yuletide Throwdown, Blondie's update of their song Rapture, and stream their short film Vivir en Habana on Amazon services. Debbie's first solo album will be reissued this year, and her memoir Face It will soon be available in paperback. Also stay tuned for the first authorized Blondie archive project, which will be released this August. Check out Michael's latest book, The New Climate Wars, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet, and stay up to date with his work by visiting michaelman.net. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and brought to you with support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, media by Ottavio Media and Bailey Constas, and pressed by TCB Public Relations. Special thanks to Chris Nelson, Tommy Manzi, Molly Fulner, Thing New York, and Sean Otto for their help with today's show. Please be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening.